that Tim just read kind of set the stage for that in terms of some of the dynamics that are happening. But let's hear the word of the Lord from the Gospel of Luke 20. Then Jesus was approached by some Sadducees, religious leaders who say there's no resurrection from the dead. They posed this question. Teacher, Moses gave us a law that if a man dies, leaving a wife but no children, his brother should marry the widow and have a child who will carry on the brother's name. Well, suppose there were seven brothers. The oldest one married and then died without children. So the second brother married the widow, but he also died. Then the third brother married her. This continued with all seven of them who died without children. Finally, the woman also died. So tell us, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? For all seven were married to her. Jesus replied, Marriage is for people here on earth. But in the age to come, those worthy of being raised from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they will never die again. In this respect, they will be like angels. They are children of God and children of the resurrection. But now, as to whether the dead will be raised, even Moses proved this when he wrote about the burning bush. Long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died, he referred to the Lord as the God of Abraham the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So he is the God of the living, not the dead, for they are all alive to him. Well said, teacher, remarked some of the teachers of religious law who were standing there and happened to believe in the resurrection. (laughs) And then no one dared to ask him any more questions. So how can we apply this passage? Don't get married seven times. <laughs> Let's close in prayer. <laughs> Why do I get these passages? <laughs> it's like Edward is like, will you cover it? Sure. <laughs> no. <laughs> so this was this is this was good. So. Um, <laughs> Actually, I want to give a little bit of a history background, which I think will help us unpack what's happening in here. Because it starts with a verse, a very simple verse. Jesus was approached by some Sadducees, right? I don't know about you, but um, in my growing up, kind of reading scripture, Sadducees, Pharisees, teachers of the law, scribe, right? All one group who kind of stood against Jesus. He had to kind of do his number with them. And in the end, Jesus died, rose again, and proved himself, and so on. But... Each of these groups are actually quite distinct. So if you think of our day and age, um, with all the cultural upheaval that's happening, right? What are some groups, politically, it doesn't have to be religious, but what are some groups that you know of, like labels of groups that are, of people that are out there right now, right? Like if I said progressives, right? That carries a certain weight to it, right? You kind of have people in mind, ways of belief, ways of operating, right? What about... Um, Conspiracy theorists, right? Those are true. Those are, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, tea Party, Republicans, right? So these labels that we know, like we hear it, we see it on the news, there's a whole kind of group of people, a culture of them, what they do, what they believe. That was very similar in Jesus' day. Mm-hmm. Between the Testament, so between the scripture and Haggai, 
and Jesus comes. There's about 400 years. And it's interesting, in Haggai, it mentions the names that Tim got to pronounce, Zerubbabel and Joshua. Yes, sure. Zerubbabel was a prophet, I believe, mm -hmm. who became a king, a king kind of figure. And Joshua was the priest. And those two roles, right, kind of the king and the priest, in between the testaments came together into a dynasty of people that the, the festival of Hanukkah actually celebrates this victory, a radical victory. It's like the underdog taking over the Greek powers of the day, and they win. And so they set up this new kingship in Israel between the Testaments, and it was ruled by these people who were kings and priests. And it turns out that there were seven families in particular of this group that kind of took charge, and they were the families um, that were descendants from Zadok. And Zadok, in Hebrew, like if you talk about that group of people, it would be Zadokim. Zadokim, over time, becomes Sadducee. So these seven families who own the power and the priesthood in Israel, over time, become uh, trying to respond to Rome now coming into Israel. So the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, Zealots, Essenes, all these groups are different groups that are responding to Rome coming in. And how do we make sense of this? How do we be Israel when we have this foreign power coming in and crushing us? The Pharisees that Jesus was with most of the time, they retreated into the Galilee region. And they focused on obedience and devotion to God by studying the text. Orthodox Jews? Very simple. Yeah, the, the Orthodox Jews kind of come out of that stream eventually, right? And so in Jesus, when growing up in Galilee, he was surrounded by synagogues. And in these synagogues would be education centers where people would memorize the scripture. And so the Pharisees, when they heard Jesus teaching, would come against him and say, we need to work on this because if you're hanging out with this group of people, you're going to eventually erode our obedience, if you're with tax collectors and sinners in particular, and that will prevent God from blessing Israel and overtaking Rome. The zealots used the sword. Right? They were like, let's just get rid of Rome. We'll do insurrection and we'll come right up against them and we'll, we'll wipe them out. The Sadducees were in an interesting place. Right? They were, quote, in a sense, liberal, if you want to think theologically like today. Not quite the same back then. But um, they held that only the first five books of the Bible really were inspired. The books of Moses. Right? And so they held to that, which means that's why they didn't believe in the resurrection. Moses never explicitly teaches on that or it doesn't come out in those books. And so they thought anything outside of that is suspect. And we want to hold the priesthood pure from anything from the outside. Except when Rome came in, um, they actually partnered with Herod. They, the puppet king of Rome in Israel was Herod the Great, who was probably at the time one of the richest people in that area. Think of... Um, Think of Elon Musk today. If our country was taken over, somebody would want to ally with him for his wealth and resources to be able to get their job done in that area. That's what Rome did with Herod. The Sadducees decided to align with that power. So in a sense, you have seven families aligning with wealth and political power. They were actually, another way to describe them was they were like um, a religious mafia. You don't go against those families. When you hear in the scriptures in Jesus' day when it says, and the chief priest, who was you know, Annas and then Caiaphas, these people paid off the Romans to get that position. 
they drive themselves into that position so they can keep their wealth and their power. What happens just before this story is Jesus comes into that temple that they have the power over and he cleans out the marketplace. He challenges their system to the core. The Sadducees are the one group of people that when Jesus comes into the temple and does that would be the most threatened and put off by what he did because he's poking them right at the source of their collusion with Rome and they're using the temple for their own financial benefit. The poor, the widows, would, would come into the temple and they'd be required to give a sacrifice. These wealthy Sadducees in charge of the whole system approve of this marketplace in the court of the Gentiles where now people have to come and pay for their sacrifices, even the poor and even the widows. They could have provided all those for the poor, but they didn't. And it's very clear that they took the offerings to the temple treasury and used it for their own good, and they failed even to pay some of the priests, like, very likely, um, Zechariah, who is the husband of Elizabeth, who is the father, eventually, of John the Baptist. This, think, this is not an impersonal encounter between these two people. John the Baptist preached against them. Jesus came out, was baptized by John the Baptist. He's now coming into the middle of the temple. Oh, man, if you were an average citizen of Israel and saw this happening, your, your, your spine would be tingling because this is major. Like, this is a major confrontation going on when Jesus first clears the temple and now the Sadducees, first they sent spies in a previous story, now they're coming directly to Jesus to challenge him. And they choose this way to talk about resurrection. And it's a really interesting encounter. Um, the story seems odd, right? Seven people, each husband dies, they marry this woman, no children, and eventually they all die. Um, what's interesting is the very similar story is in the book of Tobit, which at that time would not have been a, a scripture canon book for any of the Jews. But it's interesting that the Sadducees choose to take a well-known story, probably, to everybody at that time, which was this woman, Sarah, who was married seven times, and each of her husbands, before they could conceive, a demon came in and killed him until the seventh one finally died. And then the last person who came and married her, um, I think it's Josiah was his name, ended up being part of kind of the renewal and um, the ongoing devotion of God's people towards uh, during the time between the Testaments. So they, they pull this odd story out of not their canon of scripture, but out of what the Jews would have known. And they bring that story in and then challenge Jesus. Essentially, they're saying, do you believe, do, do you believe these extra kind of books to be authoritative and true? Because if you mm. do, then you're going against the temple system. And you have to, be, you have to, you have to prove yourself. And so they bring in this very interesting story. Um, what's the trap, though, right? So if Jesus answers in different ways, what's the, the trap? Because essentially, I think the trap is this. They are trying to get Jesus to stumble so that they can have the authority over him in the mm. public eye of the people. Because right now, Jesus has that authority, and it's threatening them. Oh, they're going to try to lame duck Jesus. Yeah, lame duck Jesus, exactly. So, so what, what's the trap? Well, if Jesus can unta uh, can't untangle this mess with these seven brothers in deciding who will be married in the resurrection, um, so like say he says, um, I well, I mean, the first one may have more authority, but wait, no, but Moses doesn't really say that, but right, so it's like he can't really answer 
the question of which one. So if he tries that and fails, then clearly the Sadducees are going to win. But what if he does untangle the mess and has a legitimate answer? He's still left with having to prove then that Moses would uphold the resurrection because they are appealing to Moses. They say, Moses gave us a law that if a man dies, it's from Deuteronomy 25. So, so if he, even if he does untangle it, he still has the weight of burden to kind of prove that Moses actually believed or taught resurrection, which is impossible to do in a way from the, the literal scripture of the first five books of the Old Testament. So what does Jesus do? This, uh, the worship songs we just sang this morning, I think are so, he is so worthy to be worshiped, even from this encounter. Because if any of us were put in that situation, we would have felt the political, religious, theological, interpersonal weight of this so much that we would have gotten entangled in it. Jesus doesn't. He just does not get entangled in their web at all. He's operating in a completely different place. And it's worthy of worship, I believe. First thing he does, though, is he addresses marriage. Right? He says, marriage is for people here on earth. Right? That's probably the last thing they would have expected to hear. They would have expected him to talk about the brothers. Which one? But he's like, no, marriage is for people here on earth. So your question is actually completely irrelevant. Yeah. <laughs> you don't understand. In fact, I think it's in Matthew. He says, don't, you don't understand the scripture. Right. Oh, what a level charge he throws at them. Two things that are, are happening in this response, I think. Um, first thing is, he turns the focus from marriage and the problem and kind of the, the, the um, theological premises that they have, and he shifts it into looking at who are we. He basically answers a deeper question, right? So there, another way to think of it is if you think of a tree with roots and there's branches, right? We always see the branches. These would be like all the, the issues in our culture, right? The branches. But what's at the root, right? Jesus doesn't attend to the branches. He goes to the root and he's asking the question, who are we? Who are we? And when you answer that question, the Sadducees' question becomes completely irrelevant. And in fact, it exposes that they're wrong. Because he says, we're God's children. If God is eternal, God is all, and we are actually his children, then marriage is just a secondary issue compared to our identity. Mm -hmm. And it shows that if God is alive and we're his children, then we have that same potential to be alive like him. Amen. And that's what he's pointing to. Mm -hmm. And he does a second thing in here, which I think is just masterful. And that is, um, he brings in the angels. <laughs> right? He says... Um, he says, we'll never die again. In this aspect, they'll be like angels. They're children of God and children of the resurrection. Right? He, he lays that last phrase on at the end. So this is the question, right? If an angel showed up in the temple, what would the Sadducees do? If they knew it was an angel, right? They'd roll out the red carpet. Yeah, they'd be like, Thomas, my Lord, and my God. Yeah, like, I mean, they, they would do everything they possibly could to honor this person. So Jesus... The Son of God is walking into their temple. The one who understands these scriptures actually helped author them. The one who created everything in there. He's walking in. What are they doing? They're trying to crush him. They don't even understand him as a person. They're treating him like dirt. Not like a person's supposed to be treated. 
But even more, I think, convicting is that um, they're using a widow in their story to make a point to elevate themselves. And Jesus knows already that they've been exploiting the widows in that marketplace that he cleared out a couple days, and he just turns the tables on them and says, you failed. In your service in this temple, you have utterly failed to elevate the widow to her proper place where she should be. Any widow under your purview should have no needs whatsoever. So your story is just exposing your corruption. Because you're basically saying this widow would be hopeless and helpless until the resurrection. She should be provided for now by you. They would hear that. They would hear that. So he's masterful in that sense. Then he goes on, right? So first he, he doesn't even bother untangling their story. He answers it at a different level. And he does the same thing with Moses. Moses, again, is one of the branches on the tree, and he goes down to the root, and the way he does that, he goes to the very calling of Moses, the very beginning where God and Moses interact personally at the burning bush. And he does something amazingly masterful here. You don't get it here in the, the way our text is, but the way Hebrew is constructed, every, again, people who spoke that at that time and listened to Jesus would have picked up on this cue, I believe. And then he says this, um, when Moses met God, right, and he writes about it later, he refers to the Lord as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's, that's referring to Exodus 3, 6, right? So now everybody has in mind the burning bush. They probably all memorized this scripture. And they would know that when God identifies them, the way in Hebrew it sounds is, I, blank, for the verb, because there's no verb, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So by bringing up this verse, in a sense, Jesus is subtly asking, what verb are you going to put in there, Sadducees? Are you going to put, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? I will be, for the resurrect. Which verb are you going to put in there? And the only way you can answer that, if you know Exodus 3, is to answer it the way God identified himself later when Moses said, who are you? And how did God answer? I, I am. am. So Jesus, by bringing this verse up without the verb in it, forces them to recognize that the only way they can answer this is to say, God is I am the God of Abraham. Isaac and Jacob. He is the God of the living, not the dead, for they are all alive to him. Masterful. Mm. But beautiful in the sense that he just does not choose to get entangled in the branches. He goes to the roots. And I think that's why Jesus could confidently go into the temple. It's because he knew his father. He knew who we are. Mm. He knew the fundamentals. And so often, I think we get caught up in the branches. I mean, look at the new, you know, Tuesday is the day, right? Every news uh, advertisement or advertisement you see, political ad, it's all about the branches. You know, nobody deals with the roots of who are we? What, who, what are we actually, why are we here? And what, what are we to believe? And Jesus goes right there in both instances of how he answers this. And I think it's absolutely beautiful. Why is life as hard as it is? because we walk away from this man who walks into the temple. We also, I think that's, the, that's one of the things I think I take from this, is that the Sadducees come to Jesus with an agenda. Mm. 
And Jesus is like Teflon to the agenda. It just won't <laughs> stick. In fact, he turns it around, right? And essentially is saying, you need to listen to me and follow my agenda. And his agenda is to come and bring all of God's children together into resurrection and eternal life with his Father. And that means elevating people to the status here and now that they deserve, including those widows that are alluded to in the story that Luke has spent a lot of time on, as Eduardo has pointed out repeatedly. So how do we let go of our agendas when we come to Jesus? Um, I didn't get it out, but I think I have a journal packed up in a box upstairs from 8th grade where um, in our Sunday school class they encouraged us to have a daily quiet time. And so I thought, well, I'll start writing this down. So I started going through the Psalms. In the meantime, I liked this girl named Susie who for a time liked me, but then she ended up liking my best friend. And so I know if I read that journal, it would be like Psalm 42, 6, right? You know, the Lord will give you your heart's desire. <laughs> I know what that means. <laughs> so I think over and over again, like it would come back to my agenda, right? As a simple eighth grader. But hey, we do that just the same today, right? We all carry in our lives agendas. We just do. And even though we're not malicious like these Sadducees are, um, I think we still come to Jesus in a similar way, into his house that he built. And we're like, you know, I can think of a better way to do this, mm -hmm. right? And I think especially when we suffer or we enter hard times, that just comes to surface. How do we let go of that? It's interesting you know, even though the people at the very end, the people that agreed with him, right? Well said, teacher. In other words, now you're on our side, right? And pretty soon he's going to get them too. Um, but verse 40 is striking. And then no one dared to ask him any more questions. They went silent. I think that might be the practice to let go of our agenda, is to shut up. <laughs> It's hard to do. Um, Amen. It's hard to do. But not to be quiet because we think God won't care for us. Not to be quiet because we think he's going to discipline us. But it's, it's, a, it's an attitude of coming before God, trusting him. That's what the Sadducees failed the most to do here. They didn't realize that the person coming into their temple was coming into his house, his father's house, and that their primary agenda, even for the Sadducees, was life, shalom, peace, flourishing, justice, mercy, kindness, right? That's the agenda of God. But we fight it because we're against that system most of the time in our life. And so his goodness often feels like something we need to resist and bring our own agenda to. I think silence can help us to sort out those things a little bit more, to stop pushing for our words, mm -hmm. instead to listen to his and sit with them. And it might bring out a different response. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think the second way we can do this is, uh, deal with this anyway, is to notice other people with their agendas and tread lightly with them, to see, that, to see those as branches and to think of ways that we can go to the roots and care for people, even who disagree with us or um, be able to laugh at things that might otherwise trigger us and bring us into darker places. Either way, I think these are invitations for us um, to look at our own agendas 
and be quiet before the Lord, or to help kind of walk with other people in the midst of their agendas that may not uh, jive with ours. But at the, in the end, um, you know, it's, it was said that uh, among these groups of people, you know, Pharisees, and I think, uh, were the number one group Jesus interacted with because of the location of where he lived in Galilee. And it's said that he spent three years with them and had a lot of tussles, but he spent one week with the Sadducees and ended up on a cross. Wow. This really was a religious mafia. It wasn't just a lighthearted thing. Jesus knew going into the temple and clearing it, he knew this confrontation right here in particular would probably nail him to a cross. And he did it anyway. He didn't choose to back down, he chose to engage. And my guess is, as he's talking about here in verse 38, they are children of God and children of the resurrection. I'm pretty sure that's what he had in his mind when he was engaging with the Sadducees. He knew his death was imminent. And I think when he went into that temple, he wasn't going to win an argument. He was going to win us. Even if it meant that this argument that he was engaged with now might actually be another you know, step in the direction of these guys taking their power to the nth degree, colluding with Rome, and throwing them up on a cross. It worked. They won. In their eyes, the Sadducees won. But thank you, Jesus, that we worship you who uh, never can lose his children because yeah. love, love, the love of God will always come through in the end. And so let's worship this Jesus who loved us so much and went to bat for us even in a place like this temple against people that were coming against it with such power and ire to know that his love uh, will never fail. Let's pray. Amen. Jesus, thank you for doing that. Thanks for coming into the temple this week before you died. And we think of the season coming upon us too when you first came into this world. Thanks for coming and joining us. Becoming like one of us so that we might become like you. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Was that a Christmas sermon or was that an Easter sermon? I don't know. <laughs> one of the two. As we take communion today, um, and as we continue in song, just invite us to remember the sacrifice that Jesus did. Maybe even remember him in the temple as you take his body and blood today, knowing that uh, he went the distance for us to give up all of himself so that we might be able to be with him.